0: Um, we're now going to talk about faith, though, which Skype kind of represents. <laughs> so, I'd, <laughs> I'd like to um, welcome now to the stage Michael Simmons Roberts yeah. and Ridian Brook. <clears throat> <clears throat> <clears throat> morning. Good morning. We're here to talk about hair products. Oh. <laughs> So, I will of course. You're hold going to do the to shampoo,
1: that. I'm going to do the conditioner.
0: <laughs> well, you're both worth it.
1: <laughs> <laughs> you should have been an ad man, I think so. <laughs> um,
0: we're going to make um, very little <clears throat> apology for this, really, but I think, which is always a way of starting an apology, but I think what I really want us to focus on in a short period of time is the Christian religion, um, the Christian faith, and particularly of interest to me personally, and I think of profound relevance to our understanding of mortality, is the life um, and um, events around Jesus Christ. Um, Now, we're going to talk about this and approach it by looking at, and listening to some poems and also um, some readings of Ridian's work but it, it's inescapable if you read the New Testament um, that it is populated with miracles of healing and sickness um, and suffering and the response to that um, I think has such a huge um, resonance with what medicine is about and of course you know one of the one of the writers one of the gospel writers luke, was, it was am i right in saying it was luke who was the medic yes um i just wondered if you two might comment on that on specifically on on the healings and the miracles that are mounted in healings
1: well they're very matter of fact in the way they're presented which always i found reassuring when <laughs> i first read them um,
0: how do you mean so again, what do you mean by that matter of fact
1: well, there isn't, doesn't seem to be much artifice in the way that they're described. Um, I have to confess to having a before, a before and after Rudy and Brooke in terms of my reading of these stories. Mm-hmm. Um, I once sort of heard them vaguely as uh, cultural things at Christmas and Easter. Um, and then later heard them differently as, as possibilities and something perhaps to be taken more seriously. Mm. Um, so... My view of them has changed, and of course, then, uh, are they just stories or are they instructions? Mm-hmm. Um, There's the challenge that comes there mm. in all the gospels. Mm.
2: I I have a before and after as well. As a, um, a former very uh, very convinced atheist, so I was aware of the the, the stories as as cultural objects. I suppose um, I found myself. Uh, sometimes drawn to write about them, which is an attempt to explore what they might mean. But one of the things that uh, strikes me about them, I think, is the way that they seem to focus on a sense of completeness of the person rather than a a response to a particular condition or or Mm. physical symptom. Uh, There's a, a moment, is it one of the... This is where... Need radiant really greater Bible knowledge here, but is is, is there the the one uh, the healing in John's Gospel where the first question from this man who has done nothing but seemingly um, uh, complain and beg for a way out of his condition, yeah. and um, the first question asked of him is, "Do you want to be healed?" Yeah. Which seems so bizarre. The man at the um, world, well. but on the other hand, raises all those questions about someone who's become. Um, in a way, comfortable with uh, the situation he's in Mm. and um, hasn't quite made the choice of whether he wants to get out of it properly. So they're they're richly complex psychologically, Mm. I think.
0: Mm. And in the book, in um, your first book, Taliesin Jones, it's a book about a boy's encounter or struggle with encountering God and as manifest through healings and faith. Why that? Why did you arrive at that
1: as a first? Well, I mean, I came to faith uh, in my mid-twenties, and that's when I started writing, and I found myself having to write about (coughs) this particular subject. Mm -hmm. Um, There's an element of autobiography in it. Mm -hmm. Um, uh, When I was sick, um, (laughs) my mother took me to see a faith healer, Mm -hmm. um, who was also a chimney sweep. And this guy had healed my sister's warts when I was a young man. He had this reputation. And, uh, and so I went very sceptically, along with my wife, to see this guy. And um, he turned out to be more orthodox than you'd think. And um, I saw him three times, and I made a fairly swift recovery from that. And one of the things he said was, uh, you can do this yourself. He didn't take money. That was the thing that really struck me. Um, so out of that um, encounter came a sort of serious engagement, personal engagement with: is this possible? Am I imagining it? And, and you know, what does the gospel have to say about this? Um, is it just an added extra, or is it a, a, a reality that we can bring into this life? Um, so um, that's what informed uh, that story. The story was also really just an ontological. I think children are very naturally ontological. They ask the questions about life that Mm. perhaps get taught out of them later. Um, So I chose to write through the eyes of a child what I was really thinking as a 26-year-old about Mm. the the questions that it's almost embarrassing to ask, it seems, sometimes. You know, why are we here? Mm. Where are we heading? Mm. Is there a God? What happens when we die? Um, And um, it it was interesting to me because uh, at the time of thinking and writing about it, I felt a resistance to this. uh, certainly in publishing, it wasn't quite we don't do God, but there was a little bit of that. Um, can, we not, can we not do the faith thing, please? Um, because it's embarrassing um, and the world of literature particularly has a sort of resistance to it. So um, <laughs> I, I embarked on a project that didn't really have a, a, any commercial prospects, um, but it felt that the only way I could write a book was to write about something that
0: and that's interesting because that, many, if we read, when we read reviews about your poems, Michael, people will often say things that are akin to un- unashamedly writing about his faith in his poetry. You know, It's almost as if it has to be noted that the faith enters your poetry um, in a way that's it's commented on as being unusual, mm-hmm. but also as if you're being quite brave to have it in there. I, I,
2: I feel it is slightly different in poetry, I think... Um, Seamus Heaney uh, once said in an interview, poetry's never been fully secularised mm. as an art form." There, there is a sense in which I think it's less uh, that that kind of resistance mm. um, that that Ridian talks about is is not quite the same in poetry. I think lots of poets find themselves, whatever their personal Relationship with faith or doubt find themselves in it straying into that territory, whatever you call that territory—the metaphysical, or the, sacred. the speculative, the sacred—and um, it's there in the tradition, not just um, the obvious figures like the metaphysical poets, but right through the 20th century, um, people like the great American modernist Marianne Moore and Robert Lowell and W. H. Auden. So it's 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 always been a strand at the heart of poetry which makes it slightly less unusual, I think, than perhaps it is in the world of the novel.
0: And you similarly came to, to your faith later in life. Mm. So is that, some, that feels unusual to me, that there's this arrival later in life. My sense is that generally it's there early on, it stays.
2: I don't know. Mm. Um, I quite, um, I'm quite glad, I think, that um, I was an atheist I, th- I think it, it means there 's a constant relationship between faith and doubt in mm. my work um, but I mean, f- for me the the the, the switch uh, in my twenties was mm. an undermining of my, I lost my atheism mm. before I d- decided that um, my, my, my best bet was some kind of faith mm. um, and it really was uh, trying to work out what My wager on the truth might be: what's the best shot at understanding all this? And it was partly—I mean, it was interesting—talking, hearing Ray talk on the previous panel and yesterday um, uh, about the the effect of philosophy uh, uh, and philosophical assumptions on these questions. For for me, um, reading philosophy at university undermined the shallow roots of my atheism. I lost my atheism because of philosophy. because it was based on nothing. It was just yeah. a sort of shallow cultural construct. Um, I'm, not to say, I'm not saying faith can't no, be that, no, no. but my atheism <laughs> certainly was.
0: I was just looking for the philosopher in the audience. So, um,
2: so I, I, I ended up finishing that thinking, what, what, what the hell do I say now about mm. the world and about mm. meaning and, mm. and purpose? Mm. And then it was the gradual... Journey, that this, this story, I mean, you talked about this, this, the story at the, the heart of Christianity, the, the Christian story making more sense of suffering and joy and love and loss and good and evil than the other
1: stories that I had available to me. And that was what drew me in. I'd like to be able to say that I was a thinking person before I came to faith. I think my, my, my journey was, sort of was from hedonism to faith rather than atheism. Um, I didn't really... Uh, I did think about them, but not, not as profoundly as perhaps I should have done. Mm-hmm. Um, I had sort of the reverse experience, uh, you know, the Augustine quote, I believe in order that I might understand, mm-hmm. which of course counters everything that we're taught, really. Mm-hmm. It's meant to be the other way around. Um, I did have that. Um, I'm not, I, haven't, I haven't become the most thoughtful person in the world. But the idea, you know, if someone had told me when I was 25 I'd be doing thought for the day, uh, that would have been a, a terrifying <laughs> prophecy. Uh, uh, which, um, you know, I'm not sure how that would have come about. Yeah. Um, but interestingly, faith um, encouraged me to think much, much more deeply mm-hmm. um, than I expected. And I read all those big Russian books. Um, and, uh, you know, came to, uh, I guess, challenge my own assumptions and and. The, the, the first thing that really struck me entering this world of faith was was the resistance. Mm-hmm. I mean, people talk about you know you don't talk about religion and, uh, and politics, and that's that's certainly true. You don't talk about death actually, mm-hmm. because my my root into faith was really fear of death, mm-hmm. um, and um, I you know I admit that. Um, and the idea that there was a creed that's not even the right word a person. Mm-hmm who was challenging death. our notions about death and challenging death itself, I thought, can I take... How serious is that? And uh, I began to realise there were people who took it seriously yeah. and um, people who I kind of liked and were interesting and, and not stupid who took it seriously. So that, that journey's been interesting and unexpected. Um,
0: so I might want to come on in a moment to religion, uh, faith's um, challenge to death. But I just wondered if we might have a couple of readings, perhaps from mm. Taliesin Jones, and then a poem or two, is that alright?
1: Yes. Um, Thank you. So, my first book is called The Testimony of Taliesin Jones, and um, this is a spoiler, but it doesn't really matter, it's not a plot-driven book. Um, Taliesin uh, has had experience of healing with this healer called Billy, and he is determined to take his friends to meet this guy, and uh, upon taking him to, to Billy's house, uh, he He is in for a shock. Through the gap in the door, Taliesin can see a figure lying still on the bed like a Russian president lying in state. He is fully dressed, as if going to chapel or a wedding, with polished shoes and a wilting flower in the buttonhole. The hands are lightly clasped on a black book which balances upon the small mound of his stomach. The high mattress of the bed creates a catafalque for the body. Raising it up high, Even in the sallow light, the pallor of the face is a bloodless blue. Taliesin is no different from other boys of his age. He has seen scores of dead people, men with arrows in their backs and holes in their heads, mutilated disaster victims being put into bags, women being murdered in showers. The television has displayed a rich assortment of dead. Like other boys, he has simulated death in Best Man's Fall, killed Indians and shot cowboys. He has read about death, imagined death and feigned death. But real death has always been something that happens to people he doesn't know. He's not seen a real dead body until now. The boys can see that the body is a dead one, and they keep a respectful distance. The bed is fully made, the hands are unnaturally still. There is no slow rise of the chest. They know that it is dead, and yet still they wait, half expecting the body to move and say something to them and make fools of their eyes. For some time, an instinctive reverence keeps them from taking a closer look. The body is somehow more eloquent and wise than any living thing. It humbles them to the soles of their feet. When Luke speaks, his voice is shockingly vibrant. What's that smell? he asks. There is a sweet perfume, a low and dull odor, which is neither repulsive nor attractive. It smells like something on the turn. It's a very living smell. This smell is probably what they call the smell of death, Taliesin thinks. He sees the hands. He walks towards the body now, breaking its spell. There will be no need to put a mirror over the mouth to see if the faintest breath can steam it up and there won't be a pulse in the blue hand. The smell and the dead calm are all the post-mortem needed. But there is one last rite to perform. He takes the hand, recoiling slightly from its otherness. It isn't a living thing at all. It has no warmth and no purpose. It is shocking to remember that this hand once enhanced life. He holds the cold thing there and pinches the skin on the back of the hand. The skin clock stays pinched all its elasticity gone. It is late in the life. It has stopped. What are you doing? Who asks. I think he is dead, Taliesin says. But his hands are resting on the poison-proving holy bible that he used to f- used for balancing on Taliesin's head. Taliesin lifts the other cold hand and opens the book. A smell of leather mingles with the smell of death. He reads the first line which every believer had to know by heart. The wording is different. This is a very old edition, but the gist is the same. Taliesin closes the book and replaces it beneath the hands. He can't quite connect this body with Billy. Where is the warmth that flowed through these hands? Where is the spark that lit up the eyes? It is Billy's body, but Billy is no longer in it. The essence of Billy isn't here. There are four bodies in this room, but only three people. How did he die? Luke asks. He was ill, Taliesin says. Taliesin pitches X-rays and sees Billy coughing. Perhaps with so much energy going out of his body, he had none in reserve, no resistance against illness, but he senses that Billy's spirit is slipping away and is even now moving unseen and through nothing that can touch it. How far has it travelled, that spirit? Has it reached its destination yet? Or can it be arrested in transit before it takes up permanent residence elsewhere? If they act quickly enough, couldn't they bring it back and bring Billy back to life? The power of life is in that spirit. Lazarus slept for four days before Jesus brought him back from beyond the sweet-smelling stage. There must still be time, and there is a man who should know for sure. Thank you. Um,
2: this is uh, a poem that began with... Uh a quotation on a, the, one of the American playwright David Mamet's plays. He has a, an epigraph underneath the title saying, Mine eyes have seen the glory of the coming of the Lord. He is peeling down the alley in a black and yellow Ford. And that was the start of the poem. Uh, Night Drive. No evening cool, no garden, a metropolis, the dead hours. Air steams with sleepers. Empty streets, slow between sheer glass, no one expects him to come like this. Skipping the lights with no place to get to, driving for the sake past ranks of shop-front mannequins held hostage by fluorescent hum. Past betting shops and taxi ranks, past fights and lovers, holy drunks, a pack of dogs, one lame, steps out and makes him swerve, then gear shifts, Take him past the gated villas to the shanties under the eye of high-rise cameras. A blind rush through the underpass, then out. A truck in flames, a shout. Vast billboards pump light into giant pictures of a car. A house-tall pair of jeans. An all-night bar falls si- still in silent wonder. A pool cue points outside and men stare. Sabres spin on screens in offices locked up. And all this, yes, all this is done in hope. He kicks down, lets the car take over, runs the ranks of smoked glass towers built on bets against the future, bets against this driver. Skyscrapers as obsolete as gateposts, marble obelisks, fine needles, tuned to pick up risk. Into the wastelands, the bomb sites. Now the sightings peter out. Years later, some will say his face was wet or that he closed his eyes and drove into the river. Others, war vets, homeless, desperate poor, will say he came to eat there, found friends at their bonfires. The car is dark, a midnight blue, the mark a mystery. And snow? That much is clear. By dawn, the streets and rooftops shine with it, unseasonable. Unprecedented. Everyone and no one knows who sent it. Hmm.
0: I, so I'd like to think a bit about now, really, when you and I have talked about this, about the um, suffering. So his suffering, often des- you know, described as the passion, and the derivation of that word, um, passion in fact, also being the derivation of the word patient, premised on the Latin for suffering. Mm. I understand it. Mm. And that, um, what one does in faith with suffering. And a thing that feels uh, important is the response of religion, many religions, not just the Christian religion, to death. And one of the things we'll be talking about we are talking about this weekend, is medicines. Uh, many of us in this room will worry about um, medicine and humanity's incapacity to contend with death and the promise, often in medicine, of eternal life, and almost the wish um, to perpetuate life. What, is it, in a sense, difficult if religion, in many ways, is saying, actually, death can be overcome? We can perpetuate life in some form or other. That promise, in a way, is what we're worrying about in medicine. Is,
1: is it? Is it the same
0: thing? I don't know. It's, it's, a, it's, a, it's just something I think. Well, the, g- think about. the gospel
1: claim that there is life uh, after death is kind of outrageous.
0: You think it's outrageous?
1: Yeah, of course yeah. it is. I mean, it is absolutely outrageous hmm. um, that Jesus didn't die and. The appeared and is still alive, I and mean, that is outrageous. Mm. The fact that I believe it, you know, I have to deal with that. Mm. Um, the fact, you know, what does that do? What does that mean for my life? What does it mean for everyone's mm. lives? You know, uh, is it just a nice thing for me, mm. or is it something that's universal? Mm. Um, you, know, you have to, you have to ans- ask all those questions. Mm. Um, I, think, I, I think one thing that I do feel, and I feel this in connection to what you're saying about medicine, mm is that it's right to rail against death. Mm-hmm. Um, death is an offence, mm-hmm. and it should be considered an offence. Mm-hmm. I think there is a school of thought that say we should embrace it and accept it. Um, but I'm not sure that's the case, and I'm not sure even having faith in something beyond this life um, takes that away, yeah. takes away the fear of death. I mean, last week, I was in an MRI yes. scan, yes. lying in a box, which is like a premonition mm-hmm. of death. And I'm claustrophobic. And this thing was going over me. And uh, I tell you, my faith evaporated as as fast as the, you know, the atoms that were being... I I mean, I lay there thinking, get me out of here. Get me out of here, God. You know, did he answer my prayer? No. Um, I was in there for an hour. Um, But it did make, you know, that was a real... I mean, obviously an encounter with my mortality again. And also um, a sort of front-line... reminder of, of where, where I'm going to end up. Mm. Um,
0: and is that a source of um, fear? Not necessarily specifically for you, more, more broadly. When you say we, we, have, we should rail against death, is that because it's to be feared or because of its assault on life?
1: Well, it's because it's a mystery and we don't really understand what it is. Mm. That, that, can be, that, that induces fear. Mm. It's because we love life. Mm. You know, I, I do love my life. Uh-huh. There's something in scripture that says we shouldn't do that, <laughs> um, or suggests that we shouldn't do that too much. Uh-huh. But um, if you love your life, uh, the idea of that ending is, is, is again, offensive. Uh-huh. And um, there's a temptation, therefore, to say, and when I came to faith, a lot of people said this to me because I was ill oh, this is your, this is, it's the old line, it's a crutch, you know, uh-huh. Uh-huh. You know to which is the old CS. Yes, C.S. Lewis replies, you know, I don't need a crutch, I need an ambulance. Um, um, so, you know, there is a sense of, yes, actually, um, when you're 25 and you're ill, when you're 25, I think you're probably at your most immortal feeling. You know, I, I, I think I did feel fairly... I didn't really contemplate death, really, at that point. So to suddenly have to contemplate that at that age was an interesting challenge. And uh, I am grateful for it, even though... I didn't enjoy the suffering of being ill for two years in that case. Um, had I not gone through that, I might not have uh, ended up um, growing, uh, growing the way I have grown. Sure.
0: Michael.
2: I think ha- uh, having, um, as I say, b- been a, a, a fierce and committed atheist and, and, and then a, a, a rather kind of um, struggling and, and, and liberal Christian, I think the atheism was the better crutch, if we're talking crutches. That's um, interesting. I, yeah. felt, I felt much more um, reassured by the notion that uh, you didn't have to worry about anything beyond the oblivion moment. Um, the idea that there might be something beyond the oblivion moment um, is both intoxicating and terrifying <laughs> and mysterious. Mm. Um, But the other twist that, of course, Christianity gives it is it's not about surviving death. It's Mm -hmm. not about dodging death at all. The death is absolutely at the heart of it. It's about something then that um, is created after death, a a life that has some continuities, some resemblances to this. Um, Even physicality, sensuality, Mm -hmm. we're told. But it's not the the sort of Greek notion of the floating off of a spirit. Mm -hmm. Um, So... Death is not dodged in Christianity at
1: all. Yes, it's and more, that, it is more outrageous, actually. I mean, when, th- when, when Mary finds yeah. Jesus, I mean, she can, he says, you can't touch me. Yeah. But, you know, there is a physicality involved. Yes. There's a resurrection of a body, yes. whatever that looks like. Yes. Now, I'm, my grandmother used to say the creed the only line she wouldn't say was that line about the resurrection of the body. I mean, why she'd say everything else and not that, I don't know. But you know, she wouldn't say that one line because that was too outrageous. That was too much. Right. She was probably more comfortable with the idea of spirit floating off somewhere. Um,
0: it always struck me, though, in, in, in the, the story of Jesus, that personally the uh, astonishment of it is in the utter, the, the, the clear and ferocious demonstration of a selfless um, love. Okay. And um, that moment of um, crucifixion, and at least the symbolism of holding the world's evils through an act, in fact, of love. That, there's that TS Eliot line, isn't there? Some, um, the notion of some infinitely gentle, infinitely suffering thing. So, to me, the, for, the force of that is, you know, world-changing. Mm-hmm. And then I don't see... The, the resurrection almost feels superfluous to that.
2: The, the, a number of Christian thinkers... have Simone Weil, the great French mystic philosopher, she, she uh, resented the resurrection. Mm-hmm. She thought that there was such a perfect beauty about mm-hmm. uh, the, the end of the story being this self-giving act of mm. sacrificial love mm. um, that she kind of resented the I, 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 um, I think the whole package is pr- profoundly moving, but I take what you say, and I do think that one of the things that drew me to the Christian story um, from the outset in my 20s was the notion, however hard it is sometimes to believe it, that love will have the last word. Mm that in the end, love will triumph. That's yeah. the thing that still moves and
1: powers it for me. Yeah, you don't want to miss the, the better story, though. I mean, whether you believe it or not is a different issue, but I think... I, I've just read a, a, a script, um, a film script, which is called Mary Magdalene, and uh, it's fairly orthodox uh, in, in many ways, and, except... In the end, when it gets to the resurrection, it suggests that um, it it shies away from uh, the real message being that Jesus is alive and lands with the real message is that we take out the message. And what you're describing is let's take out the message of selfless love. Um, And that's worthy and good, but why would we do that unless...
0: Well, hold on to the message of selfless love, take out the message yes, of... Yes, but how,
1: what endorses that is surely the, the triumph over death in that How story. does that
0: happen? What's the, and, you know, it's, I hope it's reasonable to press on this. How does the message of triumph over dead, death endorse the selfless love? What's the connection? I, I don't <clears throat> see the, um, the rational connection between those two, or even necessarily the theological one. They feel both really important to the faith
1: well what is what is when you say selfless love what are you talking about are you saying jesus what what has he done that's selfless well he's died why has he died what, well as it's, what's he died for as i understand
0: it for the for the terrible burden of the world's evil one that we inhabit and struggle with but now. can anyone do
1: that or is he can only god do that I mean that's right. what I. I mean right. for me, so for in happen, that sense, I can't. I can't. I can deal. I can deal with the idea. Yeah. I can just about deal with the idea that only God can do right.
0: that. So that so so in a, for that to be a truthful taking on of the world's evil, it has sins, to be God it that has to dies, be God, and therefore the resurrection needs to it shows that. I think so. Yeah. Okay. I see that. That's yeah.
1: how I've un- understood it. Outrageous though that is. Yeah. 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 yeah.
0: Michael, I just wondered um, if you might, because this, this, this comes down to this issue of who, you know, who is saving and who is receiving mm. saving. Mm. Uh, there's, a, there's a poem of yours. Um, <clears throat> I just wondered if you might read Resisting Rescue, which mm. feels really pertinent in terms mm. of the current refugee crisis, who it is that we feel, um, you know, who is doing, doing the act of good here, in which okay. direction the grace flows
2: Okay, uh, resisting rescue. Questions were asked. Ten families, no passports, no one searched the truck. Then one night they were there, obstructing traffic with their fires. No more than a matchbox on one, dried fruit on another. One had name and number on a slip in his shoe. We couldn't read the alphabet. We told them we could offer soup, hope, a short stay bed. We tried. They mocked us in a tongue we'd never heard, would not move on. We took them food, took doctors down to immunize their kids. When rats moved in, we had to act. One of their women said, we rescue you.
0: Do you, would you be able to talk around that a bit? Ooh,
2: slippery business talking about poems. Um, <laughs> well, it, it was written... That, that book was published um, in 2008, so it was long before what happened. But I think it was an, an attempt to respond to that strange... And I think, again, this is there in the Christian tradition, that paradox, the turning of the tables, which is constantly part of the Christian story, so the ones who appear to have all the power actually have none of it Mm. finally, and vice versa Um, that where the true true power in the world sense lies is not where you think it is Mm. and I I think I was exploring that, trying to explore that, I can't actually remember what the specific trigger, Mm. I think it was something I'd seen on the news about a refugee crisis, but it seemed to me that um, it wasn't even being considered that if there's an act of rescue going on here, it might be the other way around to the act of rescue we think we're going on here, that we, um, we may need these people as profoundly or more profoundly as they appear to need us.
0: Hmm. And that the act of rescue is our own, Yes,
2: somehow. and that um, rescue seems to me um, very profound and, and In in some ways, I mean, it's difficult with theological language because there's so many layers of accretion of material and history up against them. Sometimes you have to refresh the terms. And I came across, it's effectively, I suppose, a term for salvation, but I came across um, the great American poet John Berryman, something he wrote um, in the late 60s when he was battling with alcoholism and all his demons. He talked about... um, a sudden realisation at his lowest point that there was what he called a God of rescue. And he traced this theological tradition back to St Augustine and said it's always been there, the notion of a God of rescue. Um, and I just thought that was the most profound word to apply to that context.
0: But the rescue there is realised in an act of... You know, all the words are awful here, but in an act of giving. Mm. The, the, that mm. that in itself is rescuing of the giver, mm. of yeah. You
2: know. Yes, I mean there's a. I think another thing probably that fed into that is in, in my past sort of working life as a, a documentary filmmaker. I worked at the BBC. I made a film um, which involved spending three weeks filming at a place called the L'Arche community in France, and the L'Arche community is a place where people with often very severe um, Mental and physical disabilities are living in community in a village with um, young people from all over the world who volunteer to go there and older people who live there. Um, and the philosophy behind that, the man who set it up, a man called Jean Vanier, the philosophy behind it is uh, the weak need the strong as much as, uh, sorry, the strong need the weak as much as the weak need the strong or more. Um, and. It's 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 a very strange and disconcerting place to be. And the place at the time when I was filming there, I I had no kind of faith at all. I was still quite a staunch atheist, but was very moved by um, the way that that seemed to be acted out. There was no sense in which we're here to do a few years of um, uh, nursing or caring, and um, we we put in our shift and move on. There was a profound transaction going on in both directions there.
0: Which has a lot of um, resonances, in fact, in healthcare. Um, I'd like to come back to a couple more readings, but I wondered if we could just have the lights up um, for the audience, if that's all right. Um, Any thoughts or questions? Just at the back there. Um, Thank you.
3: Thank you. (laughs) Um, It strikes me that Christianity exists because Christ was risen, as you point out. I have a big problem with that, because he came alive again, and was present amongst the disciples, but only the disciples. It strikes me that it was private, closeted, secret, until published somewhat later. If Jesus is alive, why not go back on the road?
0: Why not do what? Sorry. Go back on the road. Right. But
1: contemporaneously, even you know, rather than today, sort of thing. You know, why it, he spent thank you, three yeah. years of his life being public and then he remained private.
0: Brilliant. Do you want to?
1: Well, I guess it's a trinity. You know, you have to have a trinitarian view of, of Christianity. Really, for that uh, to answer that, I. You know Jesus ascended and sent His Holy Spirit, and it's the Holy Spirit that does does the work in and through those who receive Him. Um, so uh, I don't know if I, I that's how is, that's yes. uh, that's how I see the story continuing. I is think, there a need for continuing? I, I think I think I yeah. think he is getting back out on the road, mm. but in a different way mm. and through people who um, believe it. Um, so the work does continue, I think, and has continued, uh, just, just in a different way. In fact, arguably, that is the only way it can be democratised, is through the Holy Spirit, um, as opposed to the hearsay and whisper of one man to one man. Um. But you were trying to imagine him back on the road in the, um,
0: in the poem with the late night drive, almost. Well, that, it, it, effectively,
2: it's the, it's, uh, the my eyes have seen the glory of the coming of the Lord. He's peeing down the alley in a black and yellow Ford. <laughs> is it is is about the second coming? It's mm. about the end of the world. Mm. So there's mm. an apocalyptic uh, mm. sense behind that as mm. being explored. Yeah. Mm.
0: Mm. Um, just uh, two questions along here, and then wherever at the top. Can you tell me, which comes first, faith or imagination?
2: Faith or imagination, uh, Michael? Wow. <clears throat> Which comes first, um, as in which is primary or which precedes the, the other? Um, there are so many ways of answering that. I think, um, I think in terms of I, I can only answer it really. I think rather than an abstract philosophical way through the through the terms of poetry. Um, there was some interesting conversation on the previous panel about art and instrumentalism and being used, put to the service of ideas, and so on. And I think that, for a lot of writers and other artists, is the, the, the sharp end of faith and imagination. Um, I, When I was already writing, uh, I was already writing poems um, as an atheist, and I remember when I when it, when I lost my atheism, which took place sort of slowly after about a year, I had um, this desperate sinking feeling. I thought, I'm just going to, I'll end up having to write devotional um, <laughs> poems, and it'll kill my poetry. I mean, spectacularly naive. And and you know, where where does the wasteland fit into that? And the whole the, the whole. Tr- mystical tradition of the desert fathers. I mean, it was so stupid to worry about that, but I did worry about that. I think um, the moment of stopping worrying about that and realizing that um, my faith is so completely bound up with and intrinsic to my imagination Mm. that I couldn't separate them if I tried. And therefore, anything I do in a poem doesn't have to be sort of checked against, against a list of... The tenets of my faith. It's just, I, I suppose, if, if my faith is anything, it suffuses everything I do. Um, and my struggling with aspects of it suffuses everything I do. So I find it impossible to separate those two terms now.
1: I don't think faith is possible without imagination. imagination. In fact, I, I mean, I think it's quite important mm. that, because there's a, you know, sometimes when, a, oh, you know, you, you imagined it. Mm. Um, <laughs> Well, yes. Why is that a bad thing? Um, and there, you know, there's a hostility to the idea of imagination in terms of faith because it's it's the idea of make believe. Um, well, presumably, if you knew it, it wouldn't be faith. Well, I just think that the imagination is the is the language of faith. Right. I think that's it's. I think it's how we get. I actually <clears throat> think it is how we get there more than any other way, um, because faith is hoping for things we cannot see. How do we do that? Well, with imagination. Um,
2: and you think, sorry, it's just with you know, those Ignatian exercises, where the, the, this whole ancient tradition within Christianity of an act of imagining, of active imagining, where you, you put yourself into one of the stories, the healing stories, for mm. example, and you and your sense of the story are transformed by that. That's a, that's a creative act. Mm. It's an imaginative
0: act. Mm. Mm. Was there a question along there?
1: Um, yeah, um, you mentioned the second coming. Enridian. Rydian, you talked about the great Russian novel, which instantly made me think of the Brothers Karamazov, where Jesus is imprisoned by the church when he returns because everything he stands for stands against what they have taught and interpreted. How do you, as people of faith, sit within that body of the church and the politics of religion and mm. the power? Well, it's constant... Uh I I I've, I've learned recently more recently to sort of separate religion from faith slightly in my thinking um and I have a probably a, a broader definition of what church is the most um so I have managed to stay out of a fair amount of politics um in my own you know my own walk as it were um and I think the Dostoevsky's sort of spirit, if you like, is, is to... I think he sees something very good being hijacked. Um, and I think that's a constant... I think, to be fair to most people I know who are believers, that's a constant feeling. You know, that's a constant feeling. It must be a constant feeling for people of all kinds of faiths. Right now, you know, if you're Muslim, you must feel that acutely. So I just think that's a battle That's a different battle and it's almost a different subject, but it's a massive subject, is the difference between religion and faith. And uh, the man, Karl Barth, the great theologian, said he had a good definition of the difference. He said uh, it was the difference between revelation and religion. Religion is man's attempt to get to God and revelation is God's coming to man. And I think that's quite a helpful distinction and it makes sense to me. I don't know if that completely answers your question, but I think Dostoevsky was onto to that. Mm. On, One final question from Rob.
3: It's more a comment than anything, really, uh, and, and that's in terms of the, the Greek. So Soto is translated both as salvation and healing, yeah. and so the two things fuse. So the proposition that, that physical healing is some expression of an ontological healing, I think, is there in the text. Yeah. I think the second thing is that uh, Sukho is to breathe. Suhi is what we get soul and psychology from. And Pneuma is spirit. And the association between faith, in a sense, and the imagination you see with the iteration of the psychology breathing in the substance of the symbolism of the spirit. And, of course, with all of this stuff, if we believe it, we are dealing with the infinite, and how on earth do you codify the infinite into the minuscule brains which we claim can know everything? Mm. Yeah. Mm. Well said. So that... leave it at that.
2: Yes, <laughs> absolutely.
0: Yeah. I'd like to thank you both very much for what I um, your, your generosity in um, thinking around that session and the mm. poems and the readings. So, thank to Brilliant really, and Michael, thank you.
1: Thank you. <laughs>